Hello and welcome to the Verdict Podcast. We have a very special guest on today who is relatable to the legal field and all of you who are hoping to be a barrister. But before we begin, we've just got to mention a few things. If you have a dream of being one of the world's best public speakers, if you strive for greatness in the arena of public speaking, there is only one place that you can go, and that is the Public Speaking Society run by Pav, Patricia and Emmanuel. So you can find them on Instagram. The link will be in the description of the YouTube video. I'm joined with, by the Vice President of Flamanc Law Society, who's here to tell you about the great opportunities you can gain from joining the society. Hello, Ed. Hi. If you are interested in the law or the legal profession, the Flamanc Law Society is a great society for you. We're holding mooting, we're doing debating, we're getting that set up at the moment. We also have great socials. I know we'll be doing a pub quiz online, obviously, at some point, but we're also doing a murder mystery night, which I'm personally setting up and will be very interesting at the least to do. But we have tons of plans for future events and getting guest speakers in. It's, it's really an engaging society and I'd tell everybody to get involved with it if I could. Ladies and gentlemen, we are joined today by a fantastic conversationist, Jeremy Richardson. Jeremy, do you want to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about what you do in your career path? Yes, of course. Uh, I am Jeremy Richardson. Uh, I am a judge. Uh, I'm actually the recorder of Sheffield, which means the senior judge at uh, Sheffield. But I don't just sit there. I also sit in the Court of Appeal uh, and uh, my career path to becoming a judge is relatively or was relatively uh, conventional in the sense that I was a, a barrister for nearly 30 years, uh, a junior barrister for 20 years and a QC for uh, a little uh, over nine years before becoming a judge uh, 12 years ago. Uh, and uh, I predominantly now deal with serious criminal cases uh, murder, uh, occasionally terrorism, and things of that kind. So serious, serious work. Uh, and uh, my career prior to that was uh, a mixture of uh, civil, family, and criminal work at the bar. And then when I was a QC, a silk, as it is called, simply because as a QC you wear a, a silk robe, uh, I tended to do one murder after another, uh, as uh, a, a barrister, both prosecuting and defending, interspersed with a, a series of frauds as well. So I had a fairly conventional career, common law career, as it is called at the bar. Uh, and uh, it, it's been a really enjoyable career. And I look back on it with enormous pleasure and satisfaction uh, as well. Yeah, well, I, I tend to beat around the bush with uh, guests for a while, but I'm in one of those moods today, so I'm just going to go straight in with, with the hard questions. As a judge, do you feel that you deal justice? Yes, of course. Uh, in criminal cases, of course, it's not just me. It's <laughs> the jury who decide, which are 12 uh, people drawn from all walks of life at random, they make the real decision. They are the real judges in a criminal case when it's a trial. Uh, so I am a participant in that in the sense that I preside over the trial and I direct them as to the relevant law applicable to the circumstances of the case. And if there is a conviction, I then pass sentence. But uh, in everything that I do, in whatever capacity as a judge, 
uh, I endeavour always to do justice according to the law. Well, that's interesting that you inserted the, 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 the according to the law um, uh, part of the phrase that I picked up on there. Uh, quite often, it's not as simple in, in legal cases. I'm sure you know if the glove fits. Um, but did, have there ever been cases where you felt underwhelmed by the verdict walking away from it or especially with the jury jury's involvement in a case have you ever felt that oh th this isn't the way that i think it should have gone I, I have occasionally been surprised at a decision uh, although when you really think about a decision that a jury has made that one believes is a little surprising there are usually reasons that one can fathom as to why they have taken a particular course. But uh, it's their decision, uh, and uh, that's the constitutional role of a jury, to make the decisions of guilt or otherwise. So uh, one learns professionally to slightly divorce yourself from it. Uh, it may be not a decision I would necessarily have made, but they're the ones who make it, and I respect their decision. Uh, that's, that's a really interesting outlook on that. Uh, Ed, go ahead. I was just on, on the role of juries in the modern court system, Lion and Sai both went to the courts in Truro and talked to the judge there for a little bit. And he was quite against the juries because obviously it is a group of people who don't actually, well, usually know a lot about the law. And when you explain it to them, it's it doesn't always work out i'm sure there have been instances like you said where you're surprised but it doesn't always work out in the way that the law maybe was intended to be i was just wondering what your opinion on uh, is on juries in the modern legal system whether or not they're functional today I, I am a great believer in the jury system i always have been uh, i think it is essential in an, uh, the sort of society that we have that ordinary men and women uh, sitting on a jury, reach the decision in the case. They're not expected to know the law. My function is to explain the relevant law to them in as simple and straightforward way as possible. Nowadays, we do it in a, uh, a particular way. We usually give juries very clear written directions. Sometimes the, the issues of law are quite complicated and involved. Uh, consequently, it's important that it is all written out. But I have faith in juries, and even though on occasion, and I do emphasize on occasion, one might be surprised at a decision, uh, I can usually see why they have reached a particular decision. Uh, there are alternative ways of trying people. People like me, for example, could sit alone and make decisions and give a reasoned judgment. That is a perfectly acceptable way of doing things. In other countries, that is how it is done. And I am sure I could give a reasoned decision in the way that one gives a reasoned decision in the Court of Appeal or in uh, civil proceedings or family proceedings when a judge is sitting alone. So, of course, uh, I'd be perfectly capable of doing that. But our constitutional arrangements are such that a jury in serious criminal work, makes the decision. And I, I believe in our constitution, I believe in the jury system, and uh, it is an appropriate check and balance. They come to something with a completely fresh look from 12 different perspectives. Uh, it works, 
and we have confidence in it. And uh, I'm sufficiently old-fashioned to believe that if it isn't broken, don't try and fix it. Yeah. Don't fix what ain't broke. I, I totally agree with you there. Um, I, I do have faith. I mean, obviously, I don't have an experience of a jury system. Okay, I only only have what what we, you know, our, our generation deem from popular culture, from you know Netflix shows such as The People versus O.J. Simpson. But you are being judged, you know, of a jury of your peers, um, and and that that I think is really important because essentially you're being judged by people as exactly as you said who have a fresh eye you know who don't have necessarily any experience of of common law rules based off other cases who just are coming in looking at the facts looking at the laws that you explain to them and coming to a valued decision Um, most decisions most decisions that juries make are factual they have nothing to do with the law they apply the law and most of the law is pretty straightforward occasionally there's something a little complicated but they usually get to grips with that relatively quickly and, and understand it in the context of the case. But most cases are about who you, who do you believe? And mm. juries are really best place as ordinary citizens to make those sorts of decisions. Twelve people sitting together making a decision. Do we believe this? Do we believe that? What is the correct interpretation of this, that or the other? What inferences can we properly draw from established facts? All of those things are within the province of of the jury and uh, as i say i'm i'm a great believer in the jury system mm. so you say as well that you pass sentences which which kind of intrigues me i've never actually spoken to a judge about you know what, what type of sentences they pass so how do you feel about that is, is it is it nerve-wracking to you to know that you could be you know changing someone's life it quite significantly. It, it, it's not nerve-wracking. It is occasionally anxious. And whatever the case, whether it's serious or, or less serious, one always appreciates the enormous responsibility mm. of passing sentence. It changes people's lives, not just for the individual who is being sentenced, but potentially for the victim of the crime, uh, for the wider family and friends of both sides of it, both the defendant and indeed the victim. So I think we're always very conscious, and I certainly am very conscious of the consequences, the serious consequences of what uh, I am doing. And thus sentencing is is taken quite obviously very seriously indeed. Um, It's not uh, something without guidance, uh, the Court of Appeal uh, give guidance as to how uh, sentences in particular cases uh, should be passed or the range of sentence that is open to the judge. And when judges at first instance get it wrong, the Court of Appeal corrects them. But there is also something now called the Sentencing Council, uh, which issues guidelines uh, as to how judges should approach their task of uh, sentencing. These are guidelines. They're not uh, completely prescriptive. They give enormous leeway, but they provide a framework for a judge, a very helpful framework, I might add, for a judge to uh, pass a particular sentence in a particular type of crime. So it's not something we just think up as we're going along. Uh, We do have uh, those two, uh, those twin tracks, the Court of Appeal and Sentencing Council, to guide us into the broad Mm -hmm correct area but you have to do justice in an individual case and there are there are occasions 
when you are guided to a particularly uh, tough sentence, perhaps. But the justice of the case, for a variety of reasons, requires you to take a different view, uh, to perhaps moderate the sentence somewhat for reasons that uh, one has to explain. And my final point about sentencing is this. When passing sentence, a judge never says you're going to prison for three years, five years, or life imprisonment, or whatever it happens to be, and that's it. You actually give quite detailed reasons for it. I'm afraid, mm. of course, in the newspapers or the television reports, one never gets that. Yeah, 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 but, yeah that's true. Um, there are very detailed reasons quite often given. In fact, in every case, they are given uh, sometimes quite lengthy reasons. And in really serious cases, those reasons are typed out and published on the judiciary website. So, um, and the public don't always see that, of course. And it's, it's one of the problems of television and news reporting. It's a potted summary of what is said. So we, we don't act, as it were, as islands just doing what we like uh, with some form of caprice. Far from mm -hmm. it. We actually analyse the situation in accordance with the relevant law in the way that I've described. Mm. Yeah. So are you, are you for or against uh, methods like capital punishment? Capital punishment was abolished uh, not long after I was born, and mm. I am now uh, 60, nearly 63. Uh, it's really not an issue. But my own personal view, uh, and it is entirely my personal view, and I have uh, wavered in many things in life, but I have never wavered in this. I am comprehensively against any form of capital punishment. But that is my personal view. And frankly, it's not an issue as far as I'm concerned. It's been off the agenda, both in politics and the law, for years, such that, frankly, it's hardly ever mentioned. Mm. So, yeah, it's interesting. I've never, I've never actually, don't think, have you ever asked a lawyer what they think about capital punishment? I don't know. I've ever, I've asked people in general, but I've never, never ever had a conversation yeah. with someone of your stature about it. Um, it's I, never I, a talking I piece. Mm. Never a talking piece I've had with a lawyer, but I just think, so, sorry, it's uh, I was just going to say, it's in not, terms... It's not. Can you carry on? Uh, sorry, I think there's a delay. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, I was just, I, I'm really interested because I think it's quite a current topic, or at least it's still pressing, is do you see jail as a wholly punitive system or do you think greater focus should be given to the, re the rehabilitation that takes place there? Obviously, people do change after they commit crimes, maybe not everyone, but do you think maybe we should be working towards rehabilitating the incarcerated population? Parliament sets the rules in this, and, and Parliament has prescribed that there are really three uh, purposes of passing sentence. Uh, put shortly, punishing an individual for wrongdoing. Uh, secondly, if at all possible, to rehabilitate the individual. Uh, and thirdly, to protect the public. Now, where you put in an individual case, those three points is a matter for individual judgment. There are some people who commit terrible crimes that, frankly, rehabilitation is not uh, 
first and foremost in one's analysis, punishment is, and the protection of the public is. But there are quite a lot of criminals uh, who, particularly when they're young, who can be pulled back from the brink. So you have to exercise judgment as to whether or not it is feasible to rehabilitate an individual. The probation service are obviously there to help, and, and judges do not send people to prison wantonly. Usually, uh, an individual who is sent to prison uh, is sent there because it is the last resort. Uh, other things may well have been tried beforehand to bring them away from crime, and it's failed. And frequently, individuals are uh, driven by the uh, addiction to drugs. Uh, the amount of crime that is governed and driven by drug addiction is quite terrifying, frankly. So often, it's a good thing, if you possibly can, to intervene with a drug rehabilitation program at an early stage. But on the more general point as to whether rehabilitation can be done in prison, it rather depends how long the sentence is. If you have a very short sentence, very little is done to rehabilitate or try to rehabilitate. If you get a longer sentence, there are opportunities for prisoners to improve themselves, go on courses, have education and training as well. So there's no simple answer to the question you pose, quite frankly. You have to judge individual cases in accordance with the three principles that I outlined a few minutes ago. So uh, you try your best to rehabilitate. Sometimes one is surprised that it works, and there are other times when you think it's going to work and, sad, and you give somebody a lifeline, and all they do is throw it back at you. Well, then I'm afraid one has to uh, put aside rehabilitation and uh, punishment and protection of the public comes rather more to the fore. It, it's all about judgment. Definitely. It, it definitely, I can understand how it would depend on each individual uh, case that you're dealing with, um, because there probably are some people that rehabilitation is simply not an option, and there are some people that would benefit hugely from rehabilitation. Just a general question, um, and just say the first thing that springs to mind, literally, why do you think people commit crime? The first thing that you can think of. It rather depends what crime. Okay, murder. Oh, there could be someone. Any someone. Someone well. with someone without motive. Why do you think they would kill another human being? Uh, it is very difficult to envisage that as an ordinary person, but some people uh, commit crime of that very serious type uh, simply because they are in a situation uh, and uh, they commit crime, that crime, murder, for example, mm. born out of a very high level of malice. Maybe, <laughs> well, malice, you know, they are just truly malicious, inherently violent people. And uh, there are such people there, I'm afraid. It depends what sort of murder it is. I mean, there's a world away from a, yeah. uh, a domestic killing where a husband picks up a knife and stabs a wife in 
terrible circumstances uh, from a drive-by shooting. Um, they're, they're the same crime. They're both murder, but they are very different types of crime and they have to be treated in a different way. And the, the reason why the crime is committed is entirely different, uh, quite obvious. Because I was leading on to... I was leading on to I was leading on to a kind of a, a psychological point that once someone once told me that a person is 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 50% DNA and 50% the people they know and associate with. And I was I was just interested in into into how you think someone's upbringing, how do you think someone's surroundings affect their their criminal journey? Um, well there's no one you answer seen, to that. It's 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 very much uh, an individual that you come across. Uh, that it, you can't be overly simplistic about those things at, at all. Uh, I yeah. regret to say, yeah, I wish it was simple, but it isn't simple. We're all human beings. We're all terribly different. We're all made up in a different way, uh, inherently, and also the things that affect us from outside. So there isn't a simple answer to that. I'm afraid. I wish there was, as I say, but uh, sadly there isn't. And, and I'm also not uh, a criminologist uh, mm. at all. I just yeah. deal with the consequences. I mean, I think those those questions perhaps ought to be directed rather more at a, a criminologist or, or a psychologist or somebody of that kind, and I'm certainly not either of those. Mm. Do you ever have um, any... Do you bring work home with you? So if, if you were to have a case that's, you know, extremely psychologically draining, you know, something that was really serious does it ever haunt you a bit you know what you're listening to what you're hearing because I, I can imagine myself if I was in that situation it, it would probably ne- not leave my mind for a long long time if I had to preside over a case that was particularly vicious I try to divorce my home life from my professional life Uh, You learn to do that over many years. And usually when a case is over, I try to forget about it completely because it's the next one to do or something else to concern oneself with. So I do my level best to uh, divorce the two, to separate the two. There are cases, and I can think of one in particular, where it was so awful that it sticks with one. It doesn't recur in my mind all the time, far from it, but it's there at the back of my mind. And when a question like the one you've just posed is posed, Mm. that is the case that comes well to the forefront of my mind. I can't think of any others, and yet I've done plenty of pretty awful cases. I can usually remember the last really serious and nasty case that I did. And, you know, the thing that really affects me now more than perhaps anything, uh, when I started, CCTV, video, and evidence of that kind really wasn't very much to the fore. It was very rare that something was captured on CCTV. So witnesses gave oral evidence about what they saw and what they heard. Nowadays, in cases, there is usually at least one piece and sometimes many pieces of CCTV evidence. For example, recently I uh, was involved in a case, I tried a case, 
where the uh, killing, that it was a murder, was captured entirely on CCTV. And it, it, it was horrific footage. And although one gets a protective mechanism when you see this sort of footage, I can still see in my mind's eye the episode. It isn't affecting me, but I can still remember it. And the interesting point, and this is the point that I make, that the visual image, a moving visual image, can be much more disturbing and can have lasting impact much more than somebody simply recounting in evidence what happened and what they saw, however dramatic that might be in court at the time. And so one sets up in one's own life protective mechanisms. Uh, I, I refuse to watch uh, anything connected with my job on the television. I wouldn't dream of yeah. going to the cinema to see anything remotely connected with crime or go to a play or read a book that had anything remotely connected. So with not the just job. the legal sector, crime itself as well. Crime, so I, I mean, unless it's something quite uh, light-hearted, I mean, Agatha yeah. Christie or something of that kind. And, mm. and I do, frankly, quite like um, Montalbano on the television and things of that kind, um, but nothing serious about, yeah. or, or overly serious about the, the job that I do. So I do try and divorce the, the two, but occasionally you do have to work at home, obviously. Um, in fact, more so at the moment with the COVID-19 yeah. crisis, I'm working a great deal harder than ever I would do normally because we've got such a lot to do and there are so many different issues to attend to. And as the resident judge, the senior judge in a particular court centre, a very big court centre, one has uh, heavy responsibilities in, in, in dealing with these things. So... Um, the short answer to your question is uh, I try to avoid bringing the day job home, but on occasion one has to, and there are cases that I do remember, but mm. one should never allow them to affect one too much. No, I actually, I have a, a great deal of respect for that. I think out of all your skills as a, as, as a judge and as a lawyer, the ability to you know, separate yourself from your work is, is one that's probably one of the most admirable. Um, you compartmentalise. I think that's the point. Yeah. I think you have to do. You learn to compartmentalise as life goes on. Um, and it's not just a lawyer thing. It's not just a judge thing. I think people in all sorts of walks of life compartmentalise their, their careers and their work life from their home life and so on. You have to in order to protect yourself. Mm. Yeah. Well, Ed, you must have something to say. I've got another question about um, uh, specifically judge-related from our trip to Truro, but I'm going to pass on to Ed if he's got anything to say after that, because I think it's quite interesting what Jeremy just said there. Then. Uh, yeah, so I, I cut out in bits between that, but in the bits I did hear, it seems sort of a very uh, militaristic approach. It's the sort of, I'm going to do the job come home and it's all that I, I think whenever you hear people talk about their time in the military it sounded a bit like that it's not a comparison maybe you agree with or many people would draw but that's just what it sounded like to me it, it's protective we, we deal with some pretty awful things if you think about it uh some really quite terrible things uh and often in my case because i'm doing very serious criminal cases where people have died they've been killed 
uh, and uh, shocking circumstances. Uh, consequently, you have to protect yourself from that. Otherwise, I think you might uh, start to suffer psychologically and, uh, and mentally. So compartmentalization and divorcing home from work is, uh, is reasonably common amongst lawyers. That doesn't mean to say you don't do homework. We do, well, all of us do homework, but you try to, um, uh, you try to uh, d divorce the professional life from private life. It's sometimes difficult, but you wouldn't come home. You wouldn't come home and sit with your family, and, and obviously, um, this, you can't talk about cases that are going on right now. But hmm. if you're talking about a case that was in the public record, and your, one of your family members said something, you go, "Oh, that reminds me of this gruesome case I did, where this, this, and this happened." That would never, ever, you know, cross your dinner table. Well, I can't, I can't say it doesn't ever cross the dinner table, yeah. but I, I try and turn the conversation away from it. There may be something yeah. of public interest mm. uh, that uh, is uh, being discussed and therefore it's relevant to the case. I've, I would never bring the case up myself, but if they happen to have seen it, and obviously one's trying cases that are in the newspapers and on the local television mm. and all this sort of stuff, so it, it, up to a point. Uh, it is discussed, yeah. but not in any way very seriously. Uh, yeah. I think they are all aware that I try to uh, steer clear of uh, the day job at, at home. You can't yeah. do it completely. We don't live well, in total matchboxes. But um, on the whole, we try not to blur the edges of those uh, artificial boundaries. And while you're, you mentioned uh, uh, that quite a few of these crimes are drug-related, you know, the need for drugs, you know, the bane of society, et cetera, et cetera. What do you, what's your opinion of drugs, uh, the legalization of drugs, um, you know, specifically marijuana, but all drugs in general? Because we went to, when we met to Troy, the judge there said, I think they should legalize all drugs. It takes up so much court time, et cetera, et cetera. I just think they should all be legal. What, what, what's your opinion on I, the legalization of drugs? I'd like to add on to that, sorry, just the legalisation and decriminalisation, because they're two very different yeah, things. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, sorry. Decriminalisation of drugs. As a serving judge, it's always rather difficult to make uh, an observation about whether something should be uh, legalised or decriminalised. Those are matters for Parliament. And I am not a politician. That is not to say I uh, have no views. Uh, I do. But because I'm a serving judge in a fairly senior role, uh, I think it would be unwise for me to express a, a view uh, about it. So can I duck that question? Yeah, you know, you absolutely um, can. I have, <laughs> I have to duck it in a sense. And if this were a private conversation, I would happily answer it. Yeah. The only thing I would say is this. Uh, cannabis is perceived to be uh, no more harmful than some... Alcohol. other things that we use, alcohol and cigarettes and the like. Uh, but it, it is harmful. Uh, its long-term use can be harmful, and I have seen examples of that. So let us not run away with the idea that it is harmless. Yeah. 
And one does wonder, I simply throw this out as a question, if we know what we, if, if we had known what we know now know about cigarettes, one wonders whether they would ever have come into the um, uh, lawful drug compartment, so to speak. Mm. I simply pose the question. I don't seek to answer it. No, so no, I, um, I, I, I hope I have. I hope I have relatively masterfully. Yes, um, no, you, you've your that question, question with the with the utmost yeah. eloquence. Um, uh, no, I can I can respect that. Um, I, it was just interesting to hear what you said about marijuana. I I have the opinion. I don't know about Ed of, of that marijuana should be fully legalised um, and decriminalised, um, but that's for different reasons. But just because I say things like that, and this is something for the viewers to note for anyone that says stuff like this. Just because we say our oh, marijuana marijuana should be decriminalised or legalised doesn't mean we're we're admitting that it's not bad for any of us mm. and that we should smoke it all the time. That's not the point. I just think that the hassle is is, is not worth the risk for marijuana. So it's basically a, a, a my own little risk assessment. But anyway, we'll, we'll move on. We'll move those on are your there. views. Those are your views. They're very interesting, uh, and uh, yeah, they, they should be directed towards politicians rather than me yeah yeah well of, of, of course um but so you you deal in murders and you said you did a few fraud cases so i'd be really interested to know about your fraud cases i i have to say with the greatest respect to those people who were involved in those cases that i did i found them with one exception incredibly mm. tedious they were terribly hard work i might add terribly mm. hard work and there were moments of interest in them uh but they are they 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 were really quite tedious because yeah. they're, they're well for very obvious reasons what type of fraud was it in in specific if you can just give me a ballpark uh well it was usually um people involved with companies who were not behaving properly, indeed mm. criminally, in relation to those companies vis-à-vis uh, -vis money uh, and um, defrauding, in one case, the public in a very, very bad way. So uh, they, they were very significant cases, all of them, uh, but they were, they, were, they were not the greatest of interest, save one, save one of them, was, was of huge public interest at the time. Mm. Mm. Okay. Well, that, that's... I've that's always, really I've always yes. personally, as a, as a lawyer, but when I was in practice and up to a point uh, now as, as a judge, I've, I've always been interested in the human drama as opposed to the economic drama, uh, if you get the point. Right. Yeah, I, I, I understand what... Did, were you ever interested uh, in, well, I'm sure the whole world was interested, but the 2008 crash um, and, you know, the lack of prosecution in both the USA and the UK um, of, of banks and investors, how did you feel about that? I know it may not be your area of expertise, but just a general point. It, it, not, not only is it not my area of expertise. Again, I think it would be one of those areas where, as a serving judge, it would be inappropriate to make an observation. No, not, not your opinion, not, not necessarily uh, your opinion on just, them, just but do you think... Just, just let me finish. Uh, it, it's inappropriate for me to make an observation about who 
should or should not be prosecuted or whether uh, this particular type of thing should be the subject of prosecution. Again, I'm mm. trying carefully to duck that question as well. Yeah. I, I plead, I, in fairness, I plead guilty to ducking the question, but you, 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 you've got to appreciate that when one is a judge, one does have certain responsibilities to, to on occasion, keep powder dry. Okay, I understand. Right, let me try. Let me try a different angle um, with a, with another topic. So, social media is changing nearly every industry, you know, including the legal profession. Okay. Um, what do you think? Okay, I've got many questions on social media. I'll start with jury. How do you think that social media? Do you think it could negatively impact the ability for a jury to evenly come to a decision without being influenced by news? Juries at the beginning of their uh, period of service um, watch a video prepared by the court service about what they can and cannot do whilst ever they are serving on a jury. Furthermore, at the beginning of every trial, once the jury has been selected to serve on a particular case, uh, the judge gives uh, a pep talk, if you like, certainly introductory remarks to the jury. And one of the things amongst many others is the fact that the juror is prevented from undertaking any research about the case uh, in terms of social media uh, or looking anything up on the internet or anything of that kind. So in terms of the actual case, the defendant uh, is... Um, in and the jury are trying, the jury are prevented from uh, either commenting or searching or doing anything in relation to social media connected with the case. In terms of whether social media is evidentially valuable in a particular case to reveal what a particular defendant was doing or a particular complainant was doing at any given moment, then that's a matter of evidence. And there is, as yeah. you rightly say, much greater use these days of, of social media. People put all sorts of things um, on Facebook and other social media outlets that, um, uh, frankly, um, perhaps they uh, uh, should not. Should but they not. do, and then sometimes it comes back to haunt them. You hear that, listeners? Be very careful what you put on social media. I can think of many uni students that should take those words and, and heed the advice. Um, so, and it's there forever. It's yeah, there it's, it's, once you put something on the internet, it belongs to the internet. Um, how do you feel, though? You know, how are you preventing the jurors from going on social media? How are you saying, you know, are you just telling them you can't do this or are you actually putting preventative measures in place to stop them? We, we couldn't put the preventative measures in place. I mean, we do not have those sorts of powers. It isn't a, 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 we don't live in the sort of society where the judge can direct the police to monitor this, that or the other. That would be quite unconscionable and, and mm. frankly unlawful. But um, uh, what you can do and it, it is tell the jury. And if the judge, and do remember it is the judge telling somebody to, to, to not to do something, um, it usually has an impact. Yeah. And the strange thing is, if someone does misbehave uh, in some way, it usually comes out because they can't resist. They can't resist telling somebody. And uh, also, um, because it's on the 
um, in internet and it's on Facebook, usually somewhere somebody spots it, either the police officer in the case or the solicitor or this or that or the other. They spot it and it's reported to the court. So, um, it, quite frankly, although we don't have any technical means of stopping somebody doing something, the fact that it is authoritatively stated by the judge does have an impact. And it just brings me to one very important point about this. Jurors, in my experience, take their responsibilities extremely seriously. They're very aware of the momentous nature of the decision that they are making. Yeah. And therefore, in the environment of a court, if the judge says, you must not do it, they tend not to do it. It's as simple as that. And we have to trust people. We can't monitor everything. We have to trust people. And then if they do misbehave, and frankly, it doesn't happen terribly often. I, I, I can truly count on the fingers of one hand where there's been a, a jury problem over the years. But uh, we have to trust people. And on the whole, it works. Mm. Because I was just, uh, I, I know you can't comment on the case and the verdict itself. I was just... Uh reflecting back to the oj simpson trial where they had some you know jury jurors you know grabbing a newspaper um when they shouldn't have or watching tv with their kids and it was really difficult for them to control them and they were actually under quite stringent measures from what i remember they were being monitored by you know i have a vague recollection of the yeah. oj trial and it being on the television twice nightly almost in the news yeah. and so on I wasn't paying an awful lot of attention to it for the reasons I gave a little while earlier. I tend not to watch uh, that sort of thing on, on the television. But also, uh, it's the United States and their system of jurors and jury trials and the way they do things is a little different to our own, although it's essentially the same. It's a common law system and they have jury, juries. Uh, it is in reality quite different. Jury selection, for example, is entirely different in the United States. Uh, and um, I think beyond that, it would be um, bordering into territory that uh, I shouldn't to make any other comments about yeah. uh, a, 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 a case in another country uh, yeah. many years yeah. ago. Mm. Um, so do you think uh, this is a question that's actually been uh, hindering me for a while? Um, most of my modules, and I'm sure Ed's, are heavily involved with uh, technology and the future of work and how AI, et cetera, is, is going to impact the future of certain careers. What do you think is going to be the main impact as a result of digital technological innovation on, on the barrister industry in particular and, and judge as well, if you can comment on that? Interestingly, this has all emerged really uh, since covid started mm. in March, or the, or the consequences of COVID started in March, we now use in court on a daily basis, uh, much more regularly than ever we did before, all sorts of technology. For example, we have many more virtual hearings in the sense that counsel, uh, the defendant, uh, everybody usually but the judge who is actually in a courtroom appears remotely. And I think there is a likelihood for non-jury work, of which there is obviously quite a lot, uh, for there to be much greater use of uh, remote hearings and technology. For example, today, for the first time, um, we used a remote dock. We're having to use it because of the COVID crisis, which is whereby a dock 
is in a separate location to where the court is because we can't fit several defendants into one dock. We used to be able to because they could more or less sit next to one another. But because of social distancing now, they can't sit next to one another or not that close to one another. And therefore, we can only fit a, a very limited number of people in a dock, even in one of our biggest courtrooms. And, and Sheffield actually has um, some of the biggest courtrooms in the country. Uh, and therefore, we are having to innovate so I think we are going to use technology more and more uh, as the years go by. Um, in terms of artificial intelligence being uh, used, I, I have misgivings whether that will become relevant during my lifetime or even the lifetime of people behind me. But um, I think we are certainly going to use technology. And may I mm -hmm. mention one other thing about technology? For many years now, we have had in the criminal courts, in the Crown Court, a system called DCS, the Digital Case System, whereby all the papers are now electronically stored. Everything is electronically stored. When I was at the bar, one used to have to lug around in big cases, a suitcase full of papers, of lever arch files. Now you rarely see lever arch files, save a jury bundle or something of that kind. And even then it's relatively manageable. Uh, so everything is much more digital than ever it used to be. And uh, at first I thought, how on earth is, is this ever going to work? And for somebody of my generation, it was all really rather daunting. But actually we got to the hang of it extremely quickly. Likewise, in March, when we had to do remote hearings because we couldn't bring people into the courtroom for obvious reasons, uh, again, I was very concerned, how on earth is this going to work? But we got the hang of it. Even somebody like me got the hang of it very quickly. And I am, I am now something of a fan, providing it isn't used all the time. But mm. there are downsides. And can I give you one example of a downside? Yeah, please do. You, using technology, using the, a television screen all the time is very, very tiring. And it's the one thing we've learned by doing lots of these hearings remotely, where the judge is in the courtroom and everybody else is remote. It is much more wearing than any of us ever thought it would be. Doing one after the other wears you out. By the end of the day, when you've done perhaps eight or nine of these cases, it is exhausting. So uh, I think we have to bear that in mind. Looking at a television camera and uh, and having an interaction with a television camera, even though there's somebody on the screen at the other end, is nothing like as good as being able to sit across a table doing an interview like this. For example, I would much rather both of you be sat opposite me at the oh, moment. Oh, so would I. Oh, here, here. Yeah, um, definitely. So would I. Than ever us having to do it via Zoom or whatever it is. Yeah, I've got to uh, look on these little links and type in participation code, make sure host yeah. camera's on. Oh, yeah, it's a, it's I, know, I know. It's a palaver. It's a palaver and it wears us all out. We're having to do it because of the COVID-19 mm. crisis, but uh, let's not... Uh, misunderstand the situation it is not as good as an in-person yeah, meeting exactly. and likewise a remote court in my opinion is not as good as an in-person hearing for a whole range of reasons what would be interesting uh, and, I, and i'm sure i'm going to try and find this out 
I, I would like to know from a psychologist why it is we get so tired uh, doing television work, doing television hearings, doing remote hearings. I rather suspect it's because we are so focused on a screen, so mm. focused on a camera, that we don't get the visual clues or the ability to look away now and again in the way that you do when you're looking at people in a, in a big courtroom. You can occasionally perfectly le legitimately look away uh, or look at something else, whereas you feel you shouldn't or you can't when you're in a in, 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 on the television, you're you're, you're captured, you're, you're you're captivated almost by the camera, even in a courtroom, which is a very strange phenomenon. It's actually it's actually starting to affect my sleep. I don't know about you, Ed, but if That's, I've got if I've got to calls all day and and I go to sleep and I'm tired, believe you me, I was surprised because I thought coming to uni with a Zoom call, you know, I'll just sit in my chair, Zoom call, I'm going to have so much energy, you know, and all this. But actually, the reality is that I'm a lot more tired and I can't bring myself to sleep. It takes no, I hours. Yeah. I have to I, well, I, start I have at to 9 o'clock. It hasn't affected my, my sleep. Um it certainly uh, made me more weary by the end of the day, uh, and thus I do sleep fairly well. But uh, it is it is slightly changing the way we work for, for uh, yeah. not always for the for, for the best. Mm. No, I agree. I think it's going to also has the potential to damage uh, quite a few people's interpersonal skills who struggle that. Uh, you know, the amount of people I see uh, in lectures with just their, their mics off and their cameras off, and I know who they are and I know the type of person they are, I'm like, yeah, I can guarantee he's not even in the room, um, which is, 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 is probably the likelihood outcome. I just want to talk about, uh, with regards to virtual court hearings, what, what's the public law implication of that, uh, specifically human rights? Um, I believe that I'm not an expert on human rights. I should be because I studied it in first year. But I believe there's a provision for like everyone deserves their day in court or something. Um, well, we're, we're sitting in public. The, this is why the judge is always in the courtroom. Uh, I, the, there have been examples I, I, I know from abroad. Uh, the famous one uh, in the COVID crisis has been the judge in Singapore, who I believe passed the death sentence from his own home. Uh, we do not have that uh, in uh, this country. We have judges uh, sitting in criminal courts uh, in the courtroom uh, with everybody else. Sometimes it's absolutely everybody else. Other times it's one party or the defendant, uh, but certainly a substantial number of people in the case uh, appearing remotely in non-jury cases. So very different, of course, for, for yeah. trials. You have to appear in person for that. Although, as I say, we are experimenting with the remote doc, which will be the defendants watching the proceedings via television and the court watching them via television. But it is open justice. And in fact, strangely, uh, it has enabled more journalists to watch. In fact, the other day I was speaking to one of the local journalists in uh, uh, Sheffield, uh, and he thanked me 
because we've made uh, CVP, which is the system we use for virtual hearings, for remote hearings in, in court, we have made CVP available to the journalists so that they can watch and report more cases and uh, view things remotely uh, in a way that they would not have been able to before. So in a strange sense, there is more open justice, more cases are being reported publicly, which is a good thing. The public can uh, also... Uh, watch remotely if they get permission to do so. Usually it's because they have an interest in the case for one reason or another, but they, they, they have to watch in controlled circumstances. But we are sitting in public and the public galleries are open and people can come in if they wish. Uh, less and less people, I'm afraid, are coming in for very obvious reasons. It's the crisis and the problem. Mm. And actually in the current lockdown, unless you have a legitimate reason to be at court. In other words, your attendance is required. Uh, you're probably breaking the law by turning up at court. Uh, but that's a temporary phenomenon. Uh, but certain it is, if that was prevented and they had a real interest in the case, they could actually apply to watch the proceedings via CVP. Mm. So um, just to be clear, there is no, um, you know, human rights issues at no. all with doing uh, a court proceeding so it's open over, over Zoom as long as... It's open justice. Mm. Okay. I, I think the, the only thing that I think is a problem, and, I, and it's not an area that I'm particularly expert in, I believe in some family cases, which is the judge sitting alone, where evidence has had to be called there are issues relating to whether the whole case should be heard remotely in those circumstances. Um, but I'm not sufficiently well-versed in uh, that, uh, although I, I do occasionally sit in the family courts. I don't do that as a matter of course, and I haven't sat in the family courts since the COVID crisis erupted. Um, but uh, in the criminal courts, I do not see that there are any... Uh, artis, article 6 uh, points, uh, the right to a fair trial, for yeah. example. Uh, I don't think there are any uh, Article 6 points at all. Every judge in a criminal case, frankly, every judge in every case, is at pains to act fairly. Uh, that doesn't mean to say that uh, you have to be silly about everything and, and you have to do everything that everybody wants, but you must act fairly. And it, it runs through our veins. Mm. Uh, and I do not see any unfairness by remote hearings, providing everybody can properly participate in the proceedings in, in an appropriate way. This has been a great conversation so far, and it's going to continue. But before it continues, we must talk about Flamanc Law Society, who was our sponsor. Ed Dempsey, what have you got to say about Flamanc that you haven't said already in this episode? <laughs> I mean, I'd, I'd just love to repeat, it's one of the most engaging societies that I've been a part of. Obviously, I'm slightly biased in my role, but I do think everyone should be coming to that. I think even if you're not necessarily that interested in law, we talk about adjacent fields all the time because obviously as a lawyer, you have to be well-versed in pretty much every matter to do because it's such a wide field. So we have tons of different talks. We've uh, tax, there's uh, civil criminal, as we've been talking about law, it's, it's a very wide field. And I think Flamanc helps encourage people to explore those different avenues. So even if you're not that interested in law 
or if you're thinking about it now, just try and get engaged with it through the society. It's very cheap as well. It's only £10 membership for the year. You heard it here, £10. £10 for a society that can open up all sorts of interesting doors. Now, we've heard from Jeremy so far. Can I just... can yeah, I just interrupt? When I was when I was when I was in an undergraduate, uh, and I was involved in the law society in my faculty of law, um, mm. we had the best parties. That's why people joined. I'm convinced yeah, of it. That's, that's true as well. Yeah, that's the advertising <laughs> ploy that you should run. We did yeah. the best discos. Discos were the thing in those days, mm. and we had yeah. the best parties, and mm. also quite interesting people that's, as well. So, yeah. it, um, you know. Yeah. Provisionally, for when this goes out, hopefully we're not still in lockdown and we yeah. can all meet up and everything. But again, we run great socials. So yeah, that's do. another reason to get involved. Fortunately, I can't predict the future or what our government will do with the whole lockdown scenario. But hopefully we're running great socials again. Uh, please invite so, me. In I'd love to come. It's a bit of a hike from yeah, you can come, Jeremy. But I'll, brilliant. I'll, I'll, I'll come. I'd, yeah. I'd certainly, I'd oh, we'd love to have you down. Me, yeah. uh, well, I, that's very kind of you. What, what year were you at uni? What was it? Um, what uh, year? I went to university in 1976, and I got well, a degree in 1979. So mm. I got a degree the year Mrs. Thatcher was uh, elected the prime minister. Mm. And what? What? Right. What music? What what was the 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 most popular tunes around when you were at uni? Because we've got these songs that every time you walk in a club, you go, "Oh, here we go!" Starting the formulaic night out, the same song every single night. What 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 was your uh, go to tune? You, you're probably aware that uh, now on the radio there are these radio stations that play hits of the seventies, hits of the eighties, and hits of the nineties, mm. and so on. Uh, the other day, as I was driving in, I tapped on to uh, hits of the 70s and then hits of the 80s. And there was a Bruce Springsteen song, for the life of me, I can't now remember what it was, but it was very famous at the time. And, you know, I could more or less remember the words. And I went yeah. into court and I spoke to a colleague as I was walking down the corridor we all have to socially distance now, so I didn't nip into her room. And she's more or less the same sort of age as, as me. And I mentioned what I heard on the radio. And we both recounted the song at the time. Um, music played a part in, in, in my life. I think it plays a part in every young person's life. But um, it was rather a long time ago. Um, so my memory as to what I actually liked at the time um, has rather faded. But, as I say, when, when you hear something, as I did the other day, Bruce Springsteen on the radio, suddenly it all comes flooding back. If it was the 70s, I'm, I'm quite an avid music listener, so I, I, I know pretty much, you know, all the 70s and 80s. So if it was the 70s, it was probably, the, uh, you know, The Rising, I'd say, by Bruce Springsteen. I, I, I'd have to research that. You, You've sparked my interest. I'll, I'll research it after the podcast and I'll send you an email. Um, but, send me, but, send yeah. me all that he did in those years and I'll say, yeah, it was that one. Yeah, yeah, no. So, uh, yeah, that's really interesting. And what was, uh, what was the, the Law Society like back in, back in the day for, at your uni? Was it, was it very well-to-do or was it a, a blend it was, of It was very social. Mm. I, I, was, I was at university in London and we, 
had quite a lot of social events. Uh, it also ran the mooting competition uh, yeah. well. Uh, it arranged visiting uh, speakers, uh, judges, lawyers, things of that kind, people of that kind. Uh, it, it was it was very social. There were very good parties, uh, I recall. Um, I suspect it's not wildly different to what you do now, frankly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're slightly, slightly, um, yeah. slightly hampered at current situation, but Quite. yeah, we, it, we'll, it would yeah, be the same. Virtual, virtual pub quizzes and virtual socials. But in conclusion, ladies and gentlemen, if you're like a politics student but just a bit smart feel free to join the Flamengo Law Society I'm sure you'll have a great deal of fun now Jeremy moving back into, into kind of the legal industry what, what would have you done if you hadn't gone down the kind of barrister route were you ever interested in becoming a solicitor or was it always you wanted to be an advocate uh, I always wanted to be a barrister uh, yeah. had it not worked uh, and I think it's the one point I would make whenever anybody's embarking upon a career uh, as a barrister, it's always a good idea to have plan B mm. in your back pocket in case, because there are risks, big risks associated with endeavouring to become a, a barrister. Had it not worked, and I gave myself two years, basically, from starting, that is to say, from commencing pupillage through to... Uh, the end of pupillage, which is a year later, and I envisage that one would probably have to carry on a little bit thereafter. But had it not worked uh, after two years, I was determined that I would go and do something else. And I suspect uh, that I would have tried to get a job uh, either in um, television or broadcasting or travel. The fallback position that I did actually have was working for the British Council. Um, I had got some great, in fact, two great holiday jobs during vacations when I was an undergraduate and uh, an immediate postgraduate uh, with the British Council. And uh, I liked that as a, that, that, that them as an organisation, and I think they quite liked me. And I had always at the back of my mind that, well, if it all fell apart, I might apply to go back and work for them in some sort of cultural role. But uh, I didn't have to fall back on plan B because plan A worked. But uh, one of those three things, probably travel, broadcasting or the British Council. Do, do you travel? Well, not at the moment, but do you, do you travel a lot? I'd be interested here. Uh, we, we, we used to do. We, we have um, t two uh, dogs, which are fairly <laughs> tying uh, at the moment. We, we travel uh, within the UK quite a lot. We come down to Cornwall, actually, to St. Moore's uh, mm. near Falmouth um, quite, quite a lot. We try to come down twice a year to, to there. Uh, and uh, uh, other places in the UK, and we travelled. We tend to travel in Europe at the moment. Well, I say at the moment, we used to, uh, yeah. and we would do. Yeah. Um, but historically, and in the past, we used to travel quite a lot. Travelling is not as fun as it used to be. Um, the, the whole palaver of getting on an aeroplane now is just grim beyond compare, and um, it's just just loads and loads of people are doing it 
And for example, when I first went to Vietnam, Vietnam had just opened up. Nobody was there. It was wonderful. Now there are bus tours and ships and cruises and goodness knows who else. I don't criticize, far from it. But it has changed the dynamic mm. of, of traveling. And I'm, I'm grateful that I did quite a lot of my um, extensive and exotic travel, so to speak, when I was a great deal younger, when rather less people did it. That sounds terribly snobby, and I don't mean it in a snobby sort of way, far from it. But um, there are demerits with hordes and hordes of people going around wonderful sites. Yeah. Yeah, it also depends on what country you go to. I mean, I always always notice that going through customs, I'm originally from Australia, so I, I travel to Australia quite a lot. And going through customs in Australia is so, so much different to England. You know, you have to go through a whole form of what to declare, what have you got in your in your bag, what food stuff have you got, is it allowed in Australia? And, uh, you know, excuse me, sir, do you mind if I open up this bag? And, you know, it's all this, it's such a... A kerfuffle, and there's always that one family member that forgets to take off a belt when they're going through security. You know, I, I can understand what you mean. And coming down to uh, Cornwall University, I never knew there was such a beautiful part of the UK because I've Cornwall never is, Cornwall been is down beautiful. To it's it's I don't lovely. Know why are we going to the south of France, where you know, in some of the south of France, is right on your doorstep in Cornwall? Yeah, <laughs> um, but yeah. No, very, I, I, very I entirely agree, and that, that's why uh, I like coming. Mm. Ed, any, I thought you had a question. Uh, Ed, you were going uh, to say something. Uh, uh, no, I was just... So my, my point was slightly moving on, because I, I know a lot of our listeners would love to hear this as well, but um, I have a housemate, Anton, who's an aspiring barrister, and I know he'd kill me if we didn't talk a bit about your position as a QC and sort of what being a barrister is like. I think it's just something that sort of like the difference between a solicitor and a barrister as well. So what, if you have any views or anecdotes about that. I, I've never been a solicitor, so I can't say what it's like to be a solicitor. But uh, uh, all, all I can say is that when I was at the bar, I was there for just under 30 years uh, and I look back on it uh, with um, immense uh, uh, affection. And there are times now uh, when I wish I was back at the bar. Not all the time. And that, that all, all good things have to come to an end. But I look back on it with Im immense pleasure. It, it was a great job. I enjoyed it immensely. That's not to say... Uh, it was easy. It was far from easy. One had some really, really tough decisions to make, some really difficult cases to do. Uh, working hard was just part of it. Part of it. Weekends, uh, regularly, every weekend one had to work. Uh, it was as simple as that. It is jolly hard work. But it's, uh, to my mind, one of the best jobs going. It was captivating. I enjoyed it. Uh, and I uh, would encourage anyone who really wants to be a barrister to do it, providing mm. they embark upon this with their eyes wide open. Uh, it is not uh, something to be embarked mm. upon lightly. Uh, as much as anything, it is hugely expensive nowadays. And if you invest quite a lot of your own money or borrow money or whatever it is you do in order to get trained, um, you have got to be pretty determined and you have to have the admixture of luck 
as well. That's why I said a few minutes ago, always have plan B in your back pocket. Yeah. But uh, it's a great job, a, a really great job. Just, but it's just jolly, jolly hard work. Mm-hmm. Just following on from that point, what do you think are the, because I'm sure there are some people listening that actually aren't quite sure whether they want to be a solicitor and a barrister. And, and I believe there are some characteristics of a person that you know can tell them which would be better suited to them. Um, what, what do you think the stark differences in skill set or personality are between a solicitor and a barrister? And how could one identify what career path would be better, best for them? They're two different professions for uh historical reasons. Uh, I now prefer to call people advocates rather than just being barristers or solicitors. Uh, That is the term we tend to use in court now because we do have solicitor advocates presenting cases. Uh, Barristers tend to do advocacy all the time. Uh, They are doing nothing else apart from advocacy. It may be sometimes written advocacy and advice but uh, they are involved in one form or another uh, in advocacy. Solicitors, on the other hand, are running businesses. Uh, They may be advocates. They may well be solicitor advocates, and some of them are extremely good at it. But if you want to be a specialist advocate, and thus doing it all the time, and only that, the bar probably is for you. You've obviously got to be um, reasonably good at presentational skills. I always think a good voice is not a, a bad component to have within the repertoire. You said that so uh, uh, so enunciated, so a booming good voice. Yeah, I, I can see what you mean. <laughs> it, it, just a good voice, a good delivery. And it's got nothing mm. to do with <laughs> an accent or a dialect or anything of yeah. that kind, far from it. It's, you've just got to have um, an ability to explain things as best you can. Some are better at it than others. It, it's some, it, you, you can learn it up to a point, but you've got to have something, uh, you've got to have a baseline from which to build, to be perfectly honest. I think people know within themselves whether they really have what it takes to be a barrister. You, you, you must always judge yourself realistically in this regard. I think also people need to have a high level of determination and drive because as much as anything, as I was saying again a few minutes ago, it's expensive nowadays. It's demanding in every dimension. Uh, The baseline is also you've got to have the academic wherewithal to be able to do it uh, as well. There is a sort of a level below which you can't can't fall. Uh, But I think aptitude, uh, savoir-faire, is something that you either have within you or you don't. Uh, And you can get better at it and you can be trained to be better, but you've got to have something within you to be able to uh, get up in front of people and argue a case. That doesn't mean to say be argumentative. It means to uh, present a case uh, and to argue it forcefully on behalf of somebody or some group of people. Uh, But the final thing, uh, as in, frankly, all things in life, you've got to have that admixture of luck as well, be in the right place at the right time. And nobody can be prescriptive about that. It just happens or it doesn't. And there are some very good people who I've known over the years who've fallen by the wayside because they just didn't have that lucky break in the way that others did. 
that's nothing to say that they weren't very good at the job or had the potential to be very good. It just didn't work for them. Mm. So if you could give a message to any prospectus barristers out there who are currently doing a law degree, if you could give them one piece of advice to carry forward into that venture, what would it be? If you are having doubts about whether it is for you, don't do it. If you are, however, driven to do it, judge yourself accurately and think very carefully about whether it's the right thing to do. And if after having asked all of those questions, you're, you are still determined to do it, well, then get on and do it. But exercise good judgment and always have plan B in the back pocket. Uh, I don't think I can give any, any other uh, advice. Say this, no, no. Any, anybody who is thinking about it needs to research it properly. They need to visit a local court. They, they need to go and meet perhaps a barrister, go to one of the outreach events that the inns of court, all the four inns do these things, usually at uh, universities, but not always. Um, get as much information as possible. People like me are always willing to help. We're always willing to go to universities if we're asked to, to address people, to speak to people and all the rest of it. So research properly um, and find out what it takes. But also don't just go to those things. Visit a local court and see whether it actually captivates you. For example, where you are, go to Exeter Crown Court, go to Truro Crown Court, go to Plymouth Crown Court or wherever. Uh, and and see, just sit in the public gallery when you can go when COVID is over. Uh, and see whether it interests you. That's what I did as a schoolboy. Uh, I was lucky enough to have a Crown Court that was round the corner from where my school was. Uh, but I also went to the Old Bailey as a 15-year-old boy to see a case, and it captivated me. So you really have to want to do it, I think. Does that help? Um, I've got a few... Uh, yeah, it does. I've got a few final questions, but I'm going to let Ed ask any others he's got right now, just to make sure we cover all bases. Well, I, I was just thinking, because obviously you were a barrister, but as a judge now, I think uh, it's a bit of a two-parter and they might be hefty answers, but I, the first part of the question would be, why become a judge? What what drove you to take that step? Because if listeners don't know, when you become a judge, you can't go back to being a barrister or a solicitor, whichever route you go, can you? I think the second part of that is, do you think you'll ever move up to the higher court or the highest court, the Supreme Court? Do you see that in your future or are you quite content at the moment? I'll, ask the sec I'll answer the second question first. Uh, a very short no. I'm very happy at the job that I do at the moment. It's a pretty yeah. senior job, uh, and uh, it's a very nice job to do in, in the judicial structure. Uh, I've only got seven, seven and a bit years to go, and uh, the uh, chances uh, of becoming a Supreme Court justice in the next seven years are absolutely nil. So I don't even think about it. <laughs> Uh, my, my days of seeking promotion are now well over and I've got a senior enough job as it is without wanting more. Uh, and I enjoy sitting in the Court of Appeal. I do sit there uh, reasonably often, but uh, I, it, it, it's not something. Uh, ambition diminishes 
as you get higher up this, or at least it has in my case, so it may be different for other people, I, I don't know. But to answer your first point, which is actually much more serious, uh, why, do you, why does one become a judge? Uh, I saw it as a natural progression. And of course, you don't make the transition just overnight. Uh, we have in, in England and Wales the system of becoming a recorder, which is a part-time judge, so you, you remain in practice but you're trying out whether you like the idea of being a judge. And they, in a sense, are trying you out to see whether you're any good at it. And you have a minimum sitting obligation each year of, I think, 15 days. So it's not as if an all or nothing. You, you are tried out. Yeah. Uh, and it works, as I say, both both ways. And, and I did enjoy it when I became a, a recorder uh, more years ago now than I care to think about as a, as a much younger man. I was actually a junior barrister at the time. It was before I became a QC. Uh, I became what was in those days an assistant recorder, although that has now gone, uh, and then a recorder and, and so on. And I was in a, a part-time job, I think, for 10 years, if not longer, before I became a full-time judge. So it's something I liked doing. I felt I was reasonably good at it. And there comes a point in, I suspect, a lot of barristers' lives, certainly mine, where when you're approaching 50, or in my case, I was nearly 50, just 50, I thought it's time to move on. You, you have a feeling within you, enough's enough, time to go. And I'd done it for nearly 30-odd years. And... Um, it was it was time to go, and uh, I was actually appointed a full time judge on my fifty first birthday. Uh, it was a, uh, just the way it was, and uh, I uh, enjoyed it uh, as a part timer and and now as a full timer. Mm. But psychologically, I don't know why one wants to become a judge apart from it being mm. a, a natural progression from the job one used to mm. do as a barrister. In my case, it does seem it does seem like a natural progression yes. for some people. Um, I've got one last question, um, but before I ask it, do you have any questions for us, Jeremy? No, not not at all. Such as I've needed to ask, I've asked as we've gone along, uh, and I'll happily give your 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 law society another plug if you'd like. Yeah, no, no, Ed, Ed, Ed will put you in contact with the right people. Um, no, that you have the you, great. you obviously have the best parties. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I've got one last question, and it's a question I I ask all my guests with some variation occasionally, um, and it's it's what, what what do you want your legacy to be? You know what it, the one you know fading memory, the one. Um, achievement you've you've had in your life what, what do you want to leave behind for people to remember you as if, if you were to say a thought or anything that comes into your head um i hope it's quite a long way off but no no, no i'm not saying step. that you're gonna die now no don't worry <laughs> I, I know exactly what you mean but on my headstone, yeah, yeah. be it ever such a long way away, which I hope it is, as I was saying, um, I think I'd like them to say uh, he did it properly. He did it fairly. Uh, 
uh, he did it with courtesy and an immense sense of justice. I think that's probably the best answer I can give. It's probably rather long for a headstone and it would need a bit of editing, a bit like this podcast. But uh, it's, it's, yes, doing, doing whatever I'm doing properly is important to me. And that, that can embrace a whole range of things of courtesy and knowledge, obviously. Uh, but doing doing the job properly is is really important to me. I don't like things done in a slovenly way, uh, and therefore doing something properly, doing the job properly, is how I would like to be remembered. I think, mm. and if there's a little bit of humour in there as well, I'm all to the I'm, I'm happy. Yeah. But doing it properly is is is, is key. Humour's for private life. Not necessarily for one's public life. Yeah, no, that's a that's a really really good answer. It's not 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 quite as poetic as the man whose name was written on water, but it, it, it's it's definitely well, I can understand. It, it's the best I could come up with uh, being put on the spot. So uh, no, normally I'm not there. I think put it's on actually. <laughs> I think it's quite. Um, I think it's quite right, actually, um, as a judge, to to, mm. to want that. I was actually, uh, I was quite impressed that you said that. <laughs> I thought you were going to say something completely different. Um, no, but what did you think I was going to say? Um, I don't know. I I, I thought you were going to say, uh, you know, a man who uh, tried every case, you know, with justice in his mind, but at the same time taking consideration societal issues or something like that I don't know but I thought what you that said actually quite I mean, embodied I, the job the job of, I thought, I the, thought job what, of the judge I thought, really I, I thought what I said was remarkably pompous but what you suggested I was going to say sounded astonishingly pompous so I wouldn't dream of saying anything like that but um, and well, I mean in all, serious, in all seriousness pomposity is something that can afflict judges I, I hope it doesn't <laughs> afflict this one too much absolutely, but, um, absolutely not um, you, absolutely not absolutely you, you, you are you are a very measured 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 person with, with a good sense of humour and I really enjoyed having you on the podcast as I'm sure Ed has and we both like to thank you, yeah, you know, just for, for, for coming well, on because this is beneficial to all the listeners as well as entertaining and informative which is something we don't often get all three of those elements so it's really great well, well thank you thank you very much for having me I, I've enjoyed it enormously in a, in a way that I thought I, I would not but I have enjoyed it enormously and as I say I'm really Really thankful uh, for the invitation. Thank you. That's, that's absolutely fine. That's absolutely fine. All right. Uh, Thank you very much, Jeremy. Thank you. Not uh, at all. My pleasure. Yeah, so the jury is out, and that was a great episode. That was absolutely cracking, Ed. I mean, it's very informative for those of us who, who want to become a barrister or just like Ed want to become the next judge, Judy. Um, so what did you think of uh, the chat we had? I, I thought it was brilliant. I mean, it really engaging individual, but obviously we have personal interests and I know that a lot of our listeners will have personal interests. I think it was just the sort of material that helps with employability. It helps you engage with the field more and obviously being barrister and advocate in the case of solicitors who will then go on and become solicitor advocates. It opens up your eyes to the reality of job is and how you have to conduct yourself. I mean, he, he had to pardon the fact that he couldn't answer questions, which I've 
fully agree with. I mean, judges are supposed to be impartial. So giving your opinion when you're a sitting judge sort of detracts from your impartiality to an extent. Obviously, in the public life, in the private, it's your own opinion, like uh, like you said. I think it was just a really engaging talk, and I think it's one of the most informative ones that we've had so far. Yeah, no. I don't know about your opinions on that. No, no, I, I, I agree with that. I think he was really, really interesting. Uh, I think we can all learn some lessons of how measured he was when answering questions. I think uh, quite yeah. often when, uh, you know, a few of us have had a few at the pub or whatever and we start just blurting things out, we should try and, you know, think about it. Uh, you know, thinking about what you say before you speak is a really um, undervalued skill yeah. in society. I, I, I mean, it's, 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 cur- yeah, it's currently half seven on a Thursday and it was still a very professional environment. I think that's something mm. that can't be overlooked. It's, this is the, I'm yeah. sure this is the end of his working day and he's still carrying that professionalism about him. Well, two of us were in suits, so it was quite professional. Uh, no, no, one of us, one of us let the side down. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to put a cut that, on cut that. Instagram. Cut Who that, cut Ed that, Gensi cut that. should wear a suit? We're not cutting it. This is my project, mate. You wear cut a suit. <laughs> anyway. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Just before we go, we've just got to talk about Flamanc and how amazing of a society it is. Poor Ed spoke about it twice already this podcast, so I'm just going to speak about it a bit. COVID-19 is currently, you know, raging around the UK as we speak and as we record this podcast, but hopefully by the time it comes out, things have lightened a bit and we'll be able to do some kind of socials and pub crawls and pub quizzes and have some good networking events for everyone from Flamanc with, with Dan Carnegie and Ed Dempsey at the helm. Also, if you have a dream, if you want to fight them on the beaches, you have to join the Public Speaking Society. It is top-notch. Um, it's one of the greatest things in the world if you want to be able to get over your stage fright and hop up on the stage and speak your piece and tell everyone your opinions. Just to let you know, there will also be a live concert on myself, which will be streaming on Instagram and will be live at Ocean View you in two weeks time so if you're watching this and it's been released in january you can find that on my instagram page i appreciate the support this has been linus leo lamke the triple l from the verdict podcast accompanied by ed dempsey it's been great see you guys (laughs) i'll see you all next time thank you very much